Hello, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us. You just need to click on the link and become an Acast supporter. It's a one-off donation. You can give as much or as little as you like, and uh, there's no commitment. But it certainly helps us to keep producing these podcasts. So thank you very much. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ideas in writing. Hello, I'm Philip Holden and this is Ideas in Writing, the podcast where we talk to people who use words, written, spoken, performed uh, and even sung, as those of you heard Tom Carradine uh, and Ian Tucker Bell the other week. Ideas in Writing is produced with the support of Mr Books Bookshop in Tunbridge, the home of inspiring, imaginative and intelligent books, gifts and conversation. In this episode, I talk to the ever-so-friendly Liam Drew, author of Fire Mammal, which is a hugely entertaining book about what it means for us to be a mammal. And it's not as simple as it seems. I first met Liam a couple of years ago when he came to talk at a science book event we arranged at the old fire station. Liam's word for this episode was connection, whilst mine for some reason was autocorrect. I thought it'd be a terribly clever word, but it really wasn't. Uh, Liam was very tolerant, though. Uh, we talked about Liam's book, of course, but also his writing for Nature and other magazines and The Guardian, amongst others. Uh, we talked about what makes science writing good and how Liam made the transition from being a neuroscientist, studying the senses and epilepsy, to a freelance writer. We discuss brain implants, the need for human perspective on science stories, scientists, pandemics, anti-vaxxers, all kinds of things. Um, so you can check out Liam online. Best place to find his work, I think, is to go to the homepages of Nature or New Scientists and search for him. Uh, so, as I say, much to talk about. And I think we might have to ask Liam back for a a future ideas in writing. So here we go. This is Connection Autocorrect with Liam Drew. So hello, Liam. Hi, Phil. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. How are you? Yes, where, I'm well. Actually, yes. actually, where are you? Where are you? That's a good question. Me, I'm I'm in East Sussex, um, hunkered down. Uh, this week I'm in, uh, in my mother-in-law's house, which is empty but for my family, um, ah, enjoying okay. the November weather. 
<laughs> yes, it is a bit like that, isn't it? But I'm sure it'll all come good again. Um, so, uh, yes, um, really, I thank you for, for joining me. Um, as you know, we start off with uh, a couple of words that we hope kind of prompts questions. I, I, I likened it to ready, steady, cook. You remember that when you bring along a, a carrier bag with them? Um, with your ingredients in, and we see what we can make out of it. I, I feel uh, like the last four—I feel like the last four months of my life have been an episode of Ready Steady Cook. <laughs> really? <laughs> you oh, know, I do sort of reduced trips to the supermarket. Cook. Yeah, no, I remember you saying something in the book, um, uh, I Mammal, about your love of cooking, or is it, or is it not necessarily a love? It's a—it's an obsession, is it? Well, it was a—it was a love before uh, before lockdown. No, it's all fine. No, I do very much like cooking. It's just funny with these reduced trips trips to the supermarket. It's. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, I've, I've just found the calculations. Yeah, I've just found we've had too much food because you know when you go there less often you think oh I must get I must get and then I think that's one of the reasons why I'm eating too much as well because you know obviously it's, it's there it's in the fridge it's got to be eaten it can't go to waste. Um, exactly. But uh, so we I can't remember it was, it was a, a few years ago we met wasn't it um and uh, talked about your book at the uh, at the old fire station yeah we did yeah i guess yeah probably about 2 years ago now the book came out nearly 3 years ago um yeah yeah that was a good night wasn't it it's a lovely venue that and i really enjoyed uh, really enjoyed the uh, the evening and i enjoyed your book as well um i wanted to start off really by um kind of i thought i thought the best way into it is saying What's 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 on your passport for you, as your occupation? I'll let you have your glass of wine. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I presume it still says neurobiologist. I've not checked it for some time. Um, no. Yes, neurobiologist. Yeah, I changed career about four years ago, so it's, it's mm. still it's out of date. <laughs> so, uh, what is neurobiology then? So that's basically the study of the nervous system, which was my career. I guess from the age of 22, starting a PhD, uh, through to the age of oof, what, roughly 38, 39. Well, and that's when I left the lab. So I left academic neuroscience to sort of pursue a career in science writing or writing. Mm. And uh, I know you write a lot for uh, Nature and some other um, journals. What, I, and I think when, when we sort of, I floated the idea of, uh, of you joining me, um, I had this idea that we were going to talk about uh, kind of science communication, which is essentially what what your job is now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Um, so I'm a, so I'm freelance and have been since I left the lab. So my jumping off point was writing the book part time in my spare time in my final yeah. time at UCL, and then I was doing that, and that was sort of my springboard into a freelance career. Um, so I mainly write, uh, like like you say, I write often for Nature. That's a fairly regular gig. And then various other sort of outlets, um, most of them sort of science-based, a um, couple of pieces in The Guardian. And yeah, and so I do, I do, I've been enjoying last, I enjoyed last year doing some lectures for sixth form students, uh, which was really rewarding. And so, yeah, it's nice to sort of try and have a bit of diversity. I'm just finishing off a kid's book, actually, uh, with DK oh, really? Publishing. Yeah, so an introduction to the brain for seven to nine-year-olds. And that's been a really fun project, actually. Oh, that um, sounds really good. Sort of, yeah, yeah, just getting the proofs back now. So, um yeah, it's great. One of the perks of my job is uh, when I was an academic and I had, whenever anything needed illustrating, it was me and my really bad PowerPoint or Photoshop skills. <laughs> yeah. Now I get to work with professional illustrators. And so I sent DK my terrible PowerPoint slide saying, oh, I think it should look a bit like this. And then this wonderful 
designers come back with these uh, two-page That's spreads. Good. So, so um, this is uh, Dorling Kindersley. Did they did they approach you for the book? Yeah, they did. Yeah, they um, yeah they were looking for a writer, um, a sort of popular science writer. It was a little bit of a fortuitous situation. I think I can say this. Um, the editors, <laughs> the ed- well, no, I think it's fine. The, ed- the editor's cousin is an academic neuroscientist, and he contacted her saying, would you be the consultant editor on this project? They like to have a professional neuroscientist check yeah. that everything's uh, legit. And then he happened to say to her, do you know anyone who might be a good fit for the project? And she said, well, as a matter of fact, uh, my friend Liam, who I studied with at UCL, um, is now a science writer, and he has an eight-year-old and a six-year-old daughter, um, so he could be a good fit. So then DK that's came to fine. me. That's fine. That's you know, that's being in the right place at the right time, isn't it? Really. But you're uh, so with that background. Uh, I mean, first of all, I think you've said some things about how frustrating academic life was. Is <laughs> 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 do, do you still feel that, or do you sometimes think I wouldn't mind the? Uh, the regular salary. Well, I spent my whole academic career on sort of three-year contracts, thinking that was that was completely an insecure way to live. And now I freelance, and um, <laughs> it looks terribly secure looking back on it. Um, yeah, academia has its has its <laughs> has its problems. Um, I had a good time there. There was ups and downs. Uh, I, you know, there's a lot of pressure to publish, and there's a lot of pressure to publish fancy, exciting stories. And but you know, I think. Um, because I say on my website, you know, I met some absolute, I met, you know, the full spectrum of humanity in that job. And I met some absolutely <laughs> brilliant people, some of the smartest people I know, most brilliant scientists, and some of the nastiest people and some of the worst scientists. But, you know, that's life, isn't it? I guess so. Um, but do you, uh, yeah, I, I, coming back to what neurobiology is, to what extent does that interact with uh, what we think of as something like, psychology uh, well i mean certainly i guess i just use the word spectrum but again you know uh neuroscience is, is a really broad spectrum like from you know you could be a neuroscientist who studies the mechanics how, how a single neurotransmitter receptor works and you could be a neuroscientist you could be a neuroscientist and work very much on sort of brain activation during sort of psychological processing and so obviously the closer you get to the that end of the spectrum the more you're interested in psychology and i think mm. myself i was always i was i was never quite at the level of the mechanics of single ion channels but i wasn't far from it some of the time so i was i my personal neuroscientific career and i think that's kind of why I, I tend to prefer the term neurobiology because i was definitely on the biology end of things rather than the neuropsychology end. okay um so yes yeah, so i was sort of down in the nuts and bolts of how do we how did nerve fibers respond to touch was my phd then i went off to try and work on schizophrenia which was incredibly challenging but still at the sort of level of how genetic mutations that predispose human beings to schizophrenia affect the basic functioning of nerve cells so down in that level of science and then and then again, I was working on sort of function of hippocampus and, and why that particular brain structure uniquely in the mammalian brain has new neurons bought into it throughout adulthood and sort of looking at the integration of neurons into existing circuits and how they sort of wire up and how that might affect higher function, but always sort of well, that's, a slight that, distance that, from the higher functions. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, it's, but it's interesting because then you kind of, for your book, you kind of zoomed all the way out and said, let's look at this whole class of animals which is a huge field as it turns out so yeah. how did that come about well it's interesting i can't remember i say this in the book or if it was very I, i've always been interested in evolutionary biology and i think it sort of richard dawkins books 
in, when I was a teenager, sort of a quarter of a century ago, and Stephen Jay Gould's books and like evolutionary biology was was what made me fall in love with science and biology. And I kind of feel that it's, it's there's a slight increase in interest in it now. But I think honestly, during my career, I felt that evolutionary biology was a sort of as an angle on neuroscience was largely absent. So I sort of fell into my book accidentally. As a, <laughs> It's funny, as I've not been promoting the book for a while, I've not told the story for a while, but as, as you know, having read the book, I hmm. struck in, in a delicate part of my anatomy by a football, and I just asked a simple, I thought simple, evolutionary biology question of why would male mammals carry their essential reproductive organs on the outside? And that was sort of this platform for me to go off and look at evolutionary biology. And then I became a father and sort of got obsessed with other mammalian traits, so wombs and lactation. I just love the perspective. And I really, I think I just really enjoyed that zooming out. And quite possibly because it was in such stark contrast to my incredibly focused academic career. I mean, it's it's a well-accepted fact now, but the majority of academic scientists become increasingly expert in increasingly narrow fields. And that's, that's fine. That's, that's, that's what it takes sometimes to, to achieve things in, in, in academia. But it's interesting. I just wrote a story for Quantum Magazine, and there was a collaboration between a, a behavioral ecologist who studied the movement of sharks, and he had a hypothesis about the way they moved. And he started collaborating with someone who works on the movement of fruit fly larvae. And the two of them just produced this beautiful collaboration. But I think there was just, they met because each, each of the respective scientists, um, she, had, she the, the Drosophila larvae expert, had started reading about movement patterns and and, and foraging, and he had started to think about the, the neurobiology of the patterns of movement he saw in his shots, and they just came together. And I thought just something really exciting came out of that collaboration, and I, th- I, I do think that. And we had, and when when I spoke to him, David Sims, we sort of spent the last twenty minutes of the interview just talking about that and how it can be fruitful to step outside of your immediate discipline and, and just collaborate and think differently and get different perspectives and get different people in the room. So, yeah, so that, so that so, so, no, no, because it sounds like, it sounds to me like the, the sort of uh, what you find exciting or kind of stimulating now is, uh, is, you know, the kind of research of, of a much wider range of, you know, kind of pursuing your interest rather than having to uh, stay very focused on something very, very small and and restrictive in a way. Is yeah. that fair? It's a, it's a you know it's, it's a double edged sword. The bit that cuts you and hurts is that you're like, oh, here I go again, starting afresh. Um, yeah. You know, so I, I write I write a feature and I've got sort of two weeks or a month to sort of dig into a, a brand new topic. And sometimes that can be really laborious when you just realise how much there is to know about it. But it's also, I mean, the real plus side, the, the, the edge that's kind of sharp and exciting, if that doesn't make me sound like some sort of masochist, the, the, the thing that sharpens you is that sort of new discovery. And it, it can be really exciting. I, yeah. I, right now, I'm just immersed in, um, in the biology of migraine. I'm going to be doing some stuff on the brain's immune system. I've learned about cystic fibrosis last month. So yeah, that travelling around, yeah, when it's not overwhelming, that's the real perk of this this job yeah. yeah that sounds good uh, and, and i think um there's a kind of flavor of that in the book in the sense that it is such a broad area and the, and this sort of uh the the different uh, uh fields that have kind of illuminated what it means to be a mammal are, are quite diverse you know from sort of genetics and sexual reproduction through to diet and uh, microbiology in terms of the gut and and there's there's a huge 
kind of mass of science that's that's maybe quite right widespread that kind of has to pull together or somebody has to pull it together thankfully you've done it <laughs> uh, in in a, a much more uh readable digestible way um so that that's kind of what i liked about it because it, it in terms of reading it because i'm clearly not a scientist it does entertain you uh through that uh, and it, it does a lot of that work for you uh, i just i'm just looking at my notes here and i just uh, realized completely forgotten what we what we um uh, started off intending to do <laughs> as we talked about this because i asked you to bring along a word didn't i um you did so what word i know you had difficulty deciding on the word but but what, what was <laughs> I, the I always word? have difficulty deciding on words yeah <laughs> it's funny i was just i was just about to leap in as you were talking about my book to say we didn't say our word because i think it's kind of pertinent the word i went for was connection now, that's interesting. Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting in itself. Okay. Um, shall I tell you what my word was? Well, please do. And I, I nearly changed it, actually. Well, I did change it, actually, but then I, I nearly changed it again. I, I chose the word autocorrect. <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> well, I can explain why, if you like, but let's go with, let's go with connection first. So, uh, <laughs> so what, <laughs> what, what was the thinking? Well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, half the reason I was going to leap in and say this, it's just, I should have rehearsed this given that I chose the word. I think it's basically the fact that I I think as I've evolved as a writer or tried to evolve as a writer, it's just a growing appreciation that what makes good writing powerful is a sense of connection. It's like, I, you know, it's when you sit down with a good book and you just feel so attached to this writer. You know, I'm doing it right now. Mm. I'm reading Gay Talese, uh, the, the old, sort of New York Times and Esquire writer. And, you know, just that, it's just a wonderful thing to have someone there with you, present. And I think, yeah. and Rebecca Solnit is another thing I've been reading lately. And she has this, she has this wonderful line where she says that the object, objects that we call a book are not really a book. A book is more like a musical score or a seed. And so, it's, you know, no one would consider a piece of music to be the musical score. The, the music exists in the playing. And so I think she's sort of saying that, you know, a book only exists in the reading. And so I think that's what I'm talking about with sort of connections is that you're trying to lay something down. Like here I am sat in a house by myself that has to come alive in the mind of another reader. And if that happens, if I really, if my voice is animated in a, in a, and somehow moving you um, as you read my book or my essays or my articles, then that's, that's, that's what it's about. And that's what I'm sort of striving to do. And I think... The methodology that's involved differs from project to project. So it was just interesting to hear you when you were talking about my book and sort of saying that I was a sort of uh, sort of keenly exploring these new areas to me. I was, I was sort of very mindful that that was, I wouldn't say I was in character. I mean, it was definitely me writing the book, but I was aware that I was I was doing that quite nakedly on the page. It was like, you know, this is, this is new to me. You know, I'm, I'm learning this. You know, I'm not, if I write about neuroscience, I sort of have a more academic pose. I certainly do this as an academic now. When I'm writing for nature, I certainly have a, not distant, I still need to connect, but the rules are different. Whereas with the book, I was able to say, this is me going on a, a journey of self-discovery, although I hate that phrase. It was a personal mission to sort of learn something about the biology that makes me a mammal. Uh, and so that was the sort of tone and style of that book. And so I think every piece has its own tone and its own style, and and somehow that has to connect with the reader. Yeah. I think I think I I uh, when you said connection I I was thinking yeah there's a process 
that that you've gone through very successfully in this book, which is uh, connecting up these very disparate um, bits of evidence and, and different perspectives. But you're quite right to say there's another sense in in which you do have to feel a connection with the with the writer, or in, or in this case, if you like, that character of the explorer who has to be consistent through the book as well. I think that's a, that's a real uh, a real talent in terms of um, uh, it's not just uh, conveying information, is it? It's as you say, there's, there's a sort of sense of uh, empathy with this person discovering, which of course is uh, is realised brilliantly, as you say, in that first story, the first page, as you get hit by the football, <laughs> it's just, it evokes empathy amongst many people <laughs> to start with. So, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I nearly, I nearly. Um, tried to uh, to find a word that was something to do with evolution i thought evolution itself was probably too obvious hmm. um but maybe well maybe i'll tell you why autocorrect came up because i was thinking about artificial intelligence and i think you've written something about that as well so maybe maybe we can talk about that I was, and i was thinking um the uh, the kind of augmentation of uh, of human uh, faculties through very simple, very familiar things like autocorrect or predictive text. Um, and I, I realised, I looked up that uh, autocorrect only went into the Oxford English Dictionary in 2011, and it should be hyphenated as well. Um, <laughs> but nobody does. Uh, if I autocorrect, autocorrects the word incorrectly. Um, huh. But yeah, so I, maybe we'll come on to the sort of artificial intelligence sort of augmented intelligence in a bit but let's um let's go back to um what i think is important about the the um the role if you like of science communication and i think that's uh one of the things that struck me thinking about our conversation was that very often the way we talk about evolution in a sort of conversational way but very often you know television documentaries and so on is actually quite misleading uh, you know the idea of we talk about structures designed to do a job yeah there's a yes yeah there's a tricky one that i know it's a big it's sort of a sort of almost gets into philosophy of biology i think and some of the some of the people that sort of talk about using artificial intelligence to sort of try and decipher what the brain does uh get into debates about this sort of saying something has a function but yeah i mean we do tend to think that evolution purposefully sort of moves toward something that has a function um and of course it's not it's just it's just haphazard and it's whatever whatever works um mm. you know it's a deeply conservative process once something is functioning and doing something that's vital for life it, it, it tends to stick around um so i think another sort of misleading thing is we always sort of think about evolution as sort of creating 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 but it's often sort of keeping 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 I'm not sure if that's a great answer but yeah <laughs> no, no 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 i mean i think i think the uh what strikes me also and and it sort of partly came out when i was looking at your book again was that all of these um everything that we identify as kind of an evolutionary step or change in uh an animal has to have a very direct link to reproductive success as well doesn't it it's not just it's a marginally better way of you know collecting fruit off a tree it has to then lead to more success in terms of uh, reproduction and and yeah, it's, it's sort no, of at that level of uh what's the word it's that level of just conveying the basic mechanism i suppose that very that i think gets sometimes gets lost yeah even when we're yeah, talking I mean, I remember, about I remember, yeah no, i i remember thinking about this with when I, so, that there is a sub 
teeth are really important in the evolution of mammals. So our sort of our molar teeth is sort of this very intricate sort of pestle and mortar system. It's all mm. interlocking teeth at the back of our mouths are, are famously mammalian. So you know, lizards. You know, some lizards have some sort of grinding, but most lizards just look like a, like a crocodile. They just bite and then they swallow. Um, so so it's just a, I just remember thinking about it. It's like this this exquisite tooth shape has been sculpted by evolution and like you say every intermediate step has to have a selective advantage which increased the reproductive success of the of the animals that had those that tiny tiny change in the shape of their tooth and i'm sure that could put people off sort of believing in evolution i guess it's just i guess one just has to appreciate the incredible expanse of time over which these processes happen and it's not like you know i think and it's the other thing is that it averages out over time so it's not every every animal that was born with a slightly better tooth shape went on to be a great success you know many of them would have died but just overall over the massive expanses of time that evolution happens that these tiny advantages on average are selected for yeah i mean time was just something i i just once you go into the world of evolutionary biology that people just start talking about millions of years as if like we talk about months it's just you know, that's just the <laughs> unit of time and you just have to accept that that's how things happen you know, like, oh that species evolved so quickly it only took five million years to evolve it's like it's five million years you know yes um yeah you but need that guess, time to be able to yeah no i was gonna say but i guess then uh, what that means is that when you're you, you're you're telling the story of evolutionary biology, you have to kind of choose what story to tell, don't you? Because you know, if you wanted to convey the the these vast amounts of time, that's a different story to conveying the, as you say, the kind of intricacy of a of a tooth or you know the placement of uh, of testicles, <laughs> however yeah. long that takes. Yeah, <laughs> well, that took millions of years too. Everything does. Um, I mean, I had a stab yeah. at it. Actually, I think I think I, I think I had a longer. I think in the first draft of my book, there was a longer stab at sort of trying to just ponder deep time. And I think it got reduced down to a paragraph in the introduction, <laughs> um, which is ironic that they wouldn't yes. give me two pages to consider three million years. Um, but you know, the part of that was just sort of trying to say that you know each page of this book deals with a million years of history, and so each. I can't remember what the calculations would have been. So it was almost, you know, sort of like almost yeah, each letter in this book is worth thousands of years. I can't remember what it would have been. As a rough approximation, it was definitely a, a million years per page. And, yeah, and that does kind of bring it home, doesn't it? And uh, but but you know, talking about the uh, communicating science, as I say, it's it's sometimes it's uh, it's not just what story you're telling. It's it's choosing a particular illustration or a particular. Uh, even just a particular aspect of that story. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, no, it's interesting you say that. It, it, uh, that just to sort of come back to a little bit to what I was saying about this sort of character and connection, and just I think once the tone of that book had been set, and it was playful and funny, but it was also serious because it was about me becoming a father and you know having a premature daughter, and so you know there's, there's, I was always trying to entwine those two themes but it was it was sort of very human and it was very sort of marveling at the natural world and just saying you know there'd be jokes along the way but the central theme i hope that came through was like wow you know like wow isn't biology amazing isn't this incredible your body is like a masterpiece and I, i'm just a little bit stunned by how ingenious evolution has been to create something as intri- intricate as a mammal now I, uh, one day i will write another book um, but right now I, I write features. And as I sort of say, you know, that sort of theme of connection 
so my other possible choice of word have been purpose, because I think the two are connected. So with each feature, one has to work out, with each story, one has to work out the purpose of writing it. Why are you writing it? And if, if you don't quite know why you're writing it, that, that come, I think that probably comes through in the reading of it. So you can sort of think, oh, you know, isn't subject X interesting? Let me write to you, write about it and tell you some cool stuff about subject X. But, uh, but I think what I'm, what I'm learning as I sort of go deeper into this career is that you're really trying, as you research a subject, you know, it can be quite amorphous to begin with, and all you know is that it's interesting. Then you have to pull out the kernel of information that you want to convey to the reader. So something meaningful and something, something that's just going to move them and just sort of make them look at the world a bit differently so you know the last piece the piece that of mine that came out this this week um there was actually a, if we if we do return to autocorrect it, it came up in a, in a, <laughs> an article i wrote about artificial intelligence and some human augmentation last year and, and there was this so i sort of included a conversation with an ethicist who'd reported on a on a clinical trial in which this a group of individuals had had devices implanted in their brains which they, they, all these individuals had epilepsy and these devices were going to well, they didn't know if they would work when they went in. They, the, the researchers and the company involved were hoping that these devices would detect early signs of an epileptic seizure and they could warn that it would make this handheld device beep and these people could take a prophylactic dose of drugs, take themselves out of harm's way. The device was a stunning success, but the company couldn't find investors. And so they went bust and all these people whose lives had been, trans- some of them utterly, utterly transformed for the good. Some people didn't like the devices, but there was this one main character who had been transformed by the device, and then she, she lost it at the end of the trial. And so I learned of it last year, and then this year I, I wrote a follow-up story just discussing the ethics of doing these types of clinical trials and how they presented a new type of trial that needed new ethical oversight. And this is a growing growing topic. And I, I get, the message here was, was pretty obvious as soon as I spoke to Rita. So I hadn't spoken to her for the previous article. This time I spent an hour on the phone with her, and it was one of the most affecting interviews I've ever done in my life. She's an incredible human being. She was so depressed and anxious about her epilepsy that she couldn't leave the house before she went on this trial. She had this device implanted. It warned her of a seizure. She would take a dose of medicine. She had no seizures for three years. She started dating. She got married. Her life was utterly transformed for the good. And then five months after her wedding, she she lost it. She lost the device. And so I guess my my point is that I'm sort of very moved by the story. And I, I... it was like you it was just so clear that I was writing it for her it was like you know and, yeah and for the people that she represented and she was very clear about that when she spoke to me I mean, that was one of the most moving things she said it was like you know this trial wasn't about me it was about me helping other people because I know what it's like to suffer and so you know it was just such a sense of purpose with that piece that you know people that have lifelong often lifelong debilitating neurological conditions need to be protected when they are doing a great service for um for technology companies trying to make a lot of money. And obviously, you know, I tried to speak to as many people as possible. And the sort of company said, well, actually, if we paid too much out in insurance, we, people would leave the space. It would be too expensive to enter the space. You know, I had to put that perspective in there. But it was very clear to me what the purpose of that story was. And so I think and so that felt much more like journalism to me yeah. than, than science writing. And I think that's the sort of skill I'm still learning. So I still consider myself a science writer. I still love writing a story, which is wow, look how cool biology is. I, I still love those stories. But just, I don't know, I guess there's just different stories to be told. And each time you embark on one, the trick is to find the sort of, even though science writing, to find the emotional core of it, I guess, and to try and convey but, that. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right when you say it's, 
it's journalism. There's this uh, thing. One of the early events we had actually was with James Graham, the playwright who wrote Ink, the story of uh, Rupert Murdoch taking over the sun. I'm sure there's a bit in the first act there about about them. Uh, Stories had to have a human in. You know, they had to have a a human angle. They had to, and you had to had to be very particular. Um, So it's better to Mm. look at one person than look at an issue. You know, that kind of uh, approach. Uh, and it does see it is it, it is what you're, you're saying. It is about connection. You connect much more easily with a person who's been through this experience than the statistic of how many people have been through this. Yeah, it's funny you say that. Actually, my first ever feature for Nature, I, I was about genetic testing for drug responses, and I wrote the whole thing just without a person in it. And then so I spoke to the editor, and we were like, "Well, it would be quite nice to have someone with personal experience of it." And I ended, and they were sort of trialing this at this big children's hospital in America, St. Jude's. And they arranged for me to speak to the mother of a child who had leukemia, who was in this program. And it just, it kind of felt gratuitous and superfluous. As I sort of spoke to her, and sort of had to ask her these sort of trite questions about, you know, what did it mean to be in this innovative genetic testing? Yeah, so it just sort of felt a bit superfluous. So there can be a bit of a trope with science writing that you open with a yeah. patient, do the science, and then wrap around to the science uh, to the patient. And I did that in the latest story with Rita, but it, but it was about her, and it was she completely was representative and emblematic of of these of this community of people that are participants in clinical trials. So I think it has to be used judiciously. So the second story I wrote for Nature it was about fecal transplants for um, inflammatory bowel disease, and I spoke to two people who had. Um, Crohn's disease and their various takes on whether or not they would do fecal transplants or not and it worked, uh, uh, worked brilliantly I don't know the reader would tell you if it worked brilliantly or not but from my, <laughs> from my perspective it worked well because it was, it was it just felt like a more honest conversation and they taught me stuff rather than being a bolt-on and just like get some emotional aspects so yeah you are making those those judgments um and like, yeah it probably differs from outlet to outlet um and i probably yeah i mean <laughs> sort of mulling my career over here as we speak but yeah i, I think i would like if you're right over nature or you're right over the guardian say you know the the, the ratio of human to science is gonna is gonna differ but that, but that's as you say that's the that's the kind of well it's 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 combination of the the art of writing it isn't it and uh and uh there's a there is a kind of ethical dimension to that which you clearly felt with the case of the uh, parent of the leukemia sufferer you know how much of this story is it right for me to use and 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 does it does it serve the purpose and i I get i think uh, you know that's kind of what i was one of the things i was thinking about with with regard to explaining evolution that that, do you do you feel a sense of of duty Uh, this is a stupid question but you feel a sense of duty to get (laughs) to get the science right Or, or do you do you uh, you know, is there a sort of compromise in explaining the science sufficiently to me- to, oh, to fulfil that purpose? I feel a, a, a rigid, sometimes crippling obligation to get the science right, as, as right as it can be. No, it's not crippling at all. It's but it's um, no, I don't. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I do. I do feel a real obligation. I mean, there is what we're doing when we're communicating science is is making it as simple as possible without getting anything wrong. So, you know, you want to know a subject well enough to know when you're straying into untruths or yes. simplifications that, that that do do an injustice to the subject. Um Oh well we can we can probably test that right now because I can I can ask you to define what a mammal is <laughs> in in less than an hour. <laughs> <laughs> well 
I mean, well, this is, you know, this is one of the things we went into, uh, I go into the book, you know, you look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, it's, uh, it's an animal that drinks milk as a youngster, has fur for some of its life and is endothermic. But obviously a mammal is genealogically defined and it's a clade of animals, a sort of a group of descendants of animals of something that we define as a mammal going back sort of 220 million years. Yeah, so, you know, you but but there is a, you know, as I sort of discuss in the book, you know, there's a baggage that comes with that uh, definition where you just sort of pick out a bunch of traits. It sort of makes you think that, well, it goes back to connection, right? Because I think when I started out writing the book, um, I was, you know, the entire sort of table of contents that I sent to the publishers in my book proposal was was a list of separate traits, you know, like you know, fur, lactation, warm bloodedness, and all the rest of it. And then writing the book was was about connecting them all together because you know an animal is not just a collection of separate traits. And so the, the sort of concept of a mammal, we can sort of say, you know, the most accurate definition is a clade of mammals all closely related, more closely related to one another than any other vertebrate. But I had to sort of try and dig for a for a concept of a mammal, and that was that that would that had to arise from what how these traits interacted, and it was the most difficult thing to do. And I'm not sure it was completely satisfactory, but you know, it's sort of a high energy, um, self sustained organism. It's sort of highly adaptable. It sort of lives through eating, through consuming vast quantities of food. Can have a biology that runs quite independently of its of its surroundings. I don't, is that going to shift many units off the shelf? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, so you, you know, but to go back to your original question of sort of wrestling with the science. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of I don't knows in that book. I mean, like nearly every chapter of like how did lactation evolve? You know, there was sort of yeah, two main yeah. theories in play on that. How does endothermy evolve? There was sort of four or five theories in play on that, you know, and they weren't mutually exclusive by any means. And I just kind of realised when I look back at the book that nearly every chapter was like, well, we think it's this, but we don't know. Yeah, and I think you you can contrast that with there's a sort of there's quite a big appetite in science publishing these days for books with clear theses. And it's just like this is you've never thought about life this way. It's actually this, and yeah, yeah. Sometimes ideas can be oversold. Um, yeah, well, I think that's one of the things that I enjoyed about the book. Actually, was that it, it it's uh, it has that. Uh, I guess humility. You know, it's uh, it's not an it's not a textbook in any sense, and it's not, as you say, selling a particular vision of, uh, as you say, what uh, you've never thought about mammals like this. But uh, yeah, it does. It's quite quite uh, quite frequently says, well, you know, this is what we think, and uh, this is what has been said, and actually, you know, it's not quite that simple. Apropos of which, I was going to say the the, the whole thing about um, reproductive organs outside the body. Just a, one of the many repeats of uh, of QI the other day about uh, temperature regulation and uh, was... uh, you know the idea that uh, sperm production is very sensitive to variations in temperature and therefore that's why. It... Did we? Did your book decide that that's probably not the case? I can't remember now. Well, it's funny. I think it was on a knife edge. The alternative to that is that sperm production is very sensitive to increases in temperature because testicles evolved to be outside the body, and so it became optimal to produce sperm at thirty-five degrees. So the alternative theory was that um, was that actually, as mammals evolved, new ways of moving, which involved which involved sort of flexing along the spinal column and, and generation of in, large waves of in, Internal abdominal pressure, that actually it may have been the pressure that was affecting the testicles' ability to produce sperm. And then they were moved down through the body. 
And that kind of comes back to these intermediate forms, right? Because mm. it's temperature that have to get from sort of up by the kidneys where the ovaries are all the way down through the abdomen and out the body. And it's difficult to imagine that, that the intermediate steps down through the body would actually have decreased the temperature. So it's very difficult yeah. for that to account for the intermediate. So I tended to sort of side with the abdominal pressure theory. Um, but then there was actually a paper that came out between the hardback and the paperback saying that actually the sort of relationship with body temperature and, and external te- te- testicles would actually support a little bit more the, the temperature regulation mm. theory. It so, wasn't just a, a randomly successful hernia. <laughs> so sort of Genghis Khan. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. Sire thousands of children or something. Um, <laughs> probably not. I didn't go into that oh, theory. Okay. All right. No. Well, I told yeah. you, I'm not. A, I'm not a scientist. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I'm not going to go through all the traits of uh, of uh, mammals, but I, the one about uh, uh, which yeah, everyone learns at school that mammals are warm blooded, and the idea that that's not quite straightforward i mean well it's just um it's just a difficult one to explain because it takes so much we started off this conversation talking about ready steady cook didn't we it takes so much (laughs) food to to be a to be an endotherm i mean it's just and it's difficult to know why when i go to sleep at night um or when i'm just sitting around doing nothing and you know lions sit around for days doing nothing between food why you would keep your temperature running high burning all these calories because you have to go out and find those calories so so any theory of warm-bloodedness um of endothermy has to account for why it's so advantageous to have such a increased need for calories the optimal situation you know when an animal's in action it's fantastic to be endothermic um if you were designing the system if an intelligent designer exists (laughs) one would imagine that there'd be a sort of on switch and it's like okay you're in active mode you know go and be endothermic keep your body temperature up the whole time but when you're resting turn it down and that never happened um and so one of the theories of why body temperature came up was that actually peak metabolic rate so the the peak rate at which you could burn calories when you're sort of chasing an antelope across the savanna actually increasing that just by necessity pulled up the basal metabolic rate and so that's all that's one of the biggest theories of it but it's it's sort of wonderful, you know, people, that sort of evolutionary perspective is always about sort of going out and seeing if these rules hold true over all these animal species. And um, and so sort of critics of that theory went out and found animals, and I'm forgetting them, which species they were, that could actually detach peak metabolic rate from basal metabolic rate. So, so it was like, well, if it can oh, yeah. evolve, then why didn't it evolve? And so, so, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's always a tall ask, isn't it, to sort of come up with laws of biology or theories that fit, you know, but, the, but the, my, my my feeling is that all of these kind of um, classifications are kind of um, uh, they're they're kind of temporary, aren't they? <laughs> well, you know, uh, mammals as a category, or endothermic and ectothermic, and there's probably some creature somewhere that you say is somewhere between the two, or it's got you know it's it you know it exhibits traits of both of these things. But the but these classificatory systems are really kind of in the, <laughs> so I was just laughing at my own joke there. Um, I was I was going to say if you're a science writer, you'd say uh, these classificatory systems are in the DNA of biology, aren't they? Um, which is, um, but they are. There's sort of the history of biology is about classifying animals. Yeah, it's been going on for millennia. Yeah, and um, it's fun. There's a book out there that I've not read, which I, I would like to read one day, and it's called The Half Life of Facts. And I think the, the central thesis of this 
book is that all facts are just the best approximations that we have at this present time, and facts turn over. And, um, and that, it's difficult because whenever you're doing science, and even when you're reporting on it, there's always this feeling that we're sort of closing in on the truth. And, you know, even as you say that, I'm like, yeah, yeah but our classification system right now is great compared to Linnaeus's or, you know, Aristotle or Hippocrates, you know, you know, yeah. we, we, we know now. But yeah, it, it, it's, it, and it's impossible to imagine, you know, in a hundred years time, what beliefs of mine and yours, people look back and think, God, they can't believe yes. they thought that. Yeah. Well, I know you've, uh, you've written uh, a little bit about uh, vaccinations, for example, which is a kind of a, if not a hot topic, it's certainly a warm topic at the moment, isn't it? Um, mm. <laughs> what what was your what was your take on that because i i think you 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 wrote a piece about um the argument for compulsory or enforcing mandatory <laughs> mandatory that's the word yeah no that was that was um that was interesting to me i it was it was another one of those features where i thought oh this will this will be a quick one and then it's like oh actually this is a really interesting debate so yes there was a, basically when vaccination rates fall and we see resurgence in measles or rubella or whatever else, as there has been in this country and other European countries in recent years, there is this question of how do you increase vaccination rates to get herd immunity? And there tends to be a knee-jerk reaction which says, make it mandatory. And it was kind of, it was just interesting speaking to people about this. And um, and so I'm just recalling all the people I spoke to. Uh, I mean, the, the, so California is were, very were these, much were these, uh, were these crazy people? <laughs> were these crazy people who who were <laughs> against vaccination or zealots who were saying, you know, we should enforce yeah, no, this? And it's funny, this sort of goes back to what we were talking about 10 minutes ago, is that I didn't, I, I thought about, I, did, I had a private conversation with a friend of mine who's not vaccinated her children. It didn't go in the piece. And so, but I didn't go the route. I didn't feel there was a need to sort of speak to Maybe I should have done. I don't know. It's just choices you make. I spoke to a <laughs> range. Of, I spoke to a range of doctors. Yeah, exactly. I spoke to a range of doctors and uh, public health professionals. Uh, but what was telling was that in California, they've gone the route of mandatory vaccination, and it's not fixing the problem. And it's sort of creating the more the government pushes mandatory vaccination, the more people resist. And so there's yeah. this sort of there's almost this standoff. When you keep seeing the the, the legislation get tighter and tighter. And it's just not winning over people. And, you know, that sort of anti-vaccination movement is, is fairly heavily fueled by, by anti-government sentiment and whatnot. And so the more one side pushes, the more the other side pushes back. Um, and so just sort of speaking to some other people, uh, a professor in London, um, whose name I'm forgetting, at, um, at the Institute of Child Health. And, and, you know, she was just sort of saying that, that she thinks that actually there is a hardcore of anti-vaxxers, but there's also just a lot of people that forget to have get their kids vaccinated or yeah. so much, there's, a there's a particular problem in london that people just move around so much that they just fall through the health system and and so she's her case was actually if we invested the resources that we have this is sort of always assuming slightly limited resources that actually a better use of available resources and both in terms of uh, person power um and budget is to actually go out and find the people so she was talking about just a bus that went to low-income areas of London and just was there saying, if you haven't been vaccinated, come and get vaccinated. Mm. And there's been great success with that. So it was sort of like having faith in the public. And as we're talking about science communication, also just education campaigns. And so it was like, you know, people 
pick up on anti-vax sentiments and they're worried and it's terrifying. And I, when I took my children and, and some of the doctors I spoke to, like when I took my children to get vaccinated, I was scared that something bad would happen. Yeah. Because we all are. That's how we react. And it's, you know, these things, these primordial fears get in our brains and there are there's real side effects of vaccines and then there's invented side effects of vaccines. But it's a, it is a fearful thing to do. And it, the, the protection from a hypothetical disease is sort of exactly, it's not hypothetical, it's a real protection, but it's, it's fairly abstract, whereas you're doing this thing. So yeah, so the other thing is to just sort of combat disinformation with information and investing in that. And, another, you know, this is another thing of like GPs in this country and, and primary care physicians in the US, they sort of have five minute slots to see parents. And if a parent comes in and says, oh, I'm not sure about getting my children vaccinated, that, that might take a 30 minute, an hour conversation to actually make a dent in their apprehension. And it's not the resources to do it. So, it, yeah, it was just interesting to see how you could have a, a rational based public health approach versus mandate it. I, I mean, I, I don't know that there is a, a, a rational approach that will convince everyone, but I, I wonder how you f- I wonder how you feel about uh, the kind of utilization of of science communication. I'd probably in a pejorative way call it pseudoscience communication by uh, yeah, on social media, for example, the sort of anti-vax things that appear on Facebook and so on. Uh, yeah. Well, what can you do? I mean, it's not. I don't, uh, is that science communication or is that just propaganda? I mean, when, well, yeah. Um, I mean, but, I mean, I don't think it's a specific science communication issue. Is it? It's sort of. Well, I suppose I mean, in the sense that you know, do you, do you, do you think there's a, a a role there to to counter that, or is there an effective way of countering that? given that those appeals are probably broadly irrational, but yet they often claim to have, you know, a, a flavour of those science books you were talking about, you know, you, you've never thought about this or what they don't want to tell you or, you know, sure. the conspiracy yeah, some... theory, I suppose. Well, yeah, there's conspiracy theories, certainly. But, I mean, you do just, I mean, I, don't know. I saw a tweet the other day saying, there is no peer-reviewed study showing that vaccines are safe. <laughs> that's just, that's, I don't know. What do you do about that? That's just... <laughs> the same line and it sort of uses i mean within like 10 words it's sort of there's no peer-reviewed thing so it's almost yeah. as if you know i know what a peer-reviewed um well yes is. i mean so uh, can... uh, even just uh recently uh i think probably on twitter because i tend to use twitter a lot um that uh, somebody talking about the uh, the whole kind of coronavirus thing, and uh, but why would you why would you trust a, vi- a, a vaccination that's been rushed through? I mean, so, but I mean, I think that's actually that's actually the most rational objection to a COVID vaccine, isn't it? I mean, this is moving at light speed, and mm. one has to trust that they're being very diligent about looking for side effects. But I think, I mean, you know, I have some sympathy with that. I mean, I think if there was if there was one cause for uncertainty about a COVID vaccination, it would be that it would be very, it would move very rapidly from the lab to the clinic. And I would hope they would do due diligence. And obviously, enough <laughs> over. You know, I don't want to put anyone off it. I would. It would be great to have a vaccine. Um, but yeah, I, I, that to me doesn't seem entirely irrational. I mean, if we're going to talk about COVID, I mean, it's just I, I, just, I mean, the mask thing is a bigger issue for me. It's just like we, yeah. Uh, or just more generally, that I really thought in March that this is this is such a pure science. Like science is the way to combat a pandemic, right? I mean, it's like yeah. 
we need treatments, we need prevention, you know, we need vaccines. We need to understand as much as we can about this virus. I mean, I just, the, the, like, science is the only way out of this situation. And I, I kind of I kind of thought in March, naively, that it would introduce a more scientific level of discourse. And, and you hear Angela Merkel speak and you think, in some places in the world, it has. And, and people yeah. are serious about talking seriously about this. But just... You know, you know, being in the UK and obviously being exposed as we are to US politics so heavily, it's, it's just, it just seems remarkable to me how how much this is exposed. I mean, just the way that sort of Trump and Johnson treat coronavirus like they did Jeremy Corbyn and Hillary Clinton. I think the sort of same tricks will work on a virus. I mean, a virus mm. just doesn't care about this. And I just, I just thought that the level of scientific discourse would go up. And it just hasn't. And it's, it's bizarre, isn't it? I was just sort of thinking like, I thought it was. A, I thought it might be an opportunity, and this probably sounds so grossly naive, that people would sort of learn about the scientific process, and that you would sort of, you would sort of hopefully see how one moves from a state of complete ignorance, as we were in March, to would one would hope to sort of finessing, honing, homing in on a on a greater understanding of this virus, and we we still operate with headline grabbing nonsense. You know, we all remember. You know, it was ibuprofen kills you if you've got coronavirus and you know smoking protects you we've we'd still have these i was was sort of trying to work out what happened to all these stories the other day (laughs) there's actually no reporting on them since the day they broke in april or may but that that's kind of i suppose that's yeah that's what what i'm because at times i think science is held in very low esteem at times certainly in in public discourse i suppose Science scientists and mm. uh, you know seeing scientists briefing anyone on television as we have over the last few months is is uh, unprecedented as far as I I'm aware, mm. um, and yet at the same time we get this kind of um, I hate to use the word but I, I'm going to because I can't think of an alternative the kind of weaponization of 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 science or scientific <laughs> language. To, to make mm. uh, things which are, have no real evidence base plausible or, uh, like you say, you know, there are no peer-reviewed papers that... Well, I mean, I think every every scientist and science writer and beyond got increasingly furious with the government's constant use of we are following the science. I mean, there was no the science at the beginning. There is just science and there are hypotheses. And, you know, what the situation called for was transparency and to show us what bits of science they were using to inform their policies instead of just, you know, parroting this line that they were following the science. And, I mean, science works best and only works when it's completely transparent. And transparency is not a strong <laughs> strong suit of this government or no. or others. So, yeah, it does get weaponized, And, you know, I'm sure if this Oxford vaccine does come through, it'll all be like rule Britannia and, you know, God bless <laughs> our scientists. Uh, and, I, and I don't know what the Oxford scientists yeah. would say about that. They, they might say we succeeded despite this government's policies. And also that their work on a vaccine was completely independent of, of, of the, the, the lockdown or the, you know, all the prevention policies that were put in place. I don't know. I would just like to have seen clearer messaging. And it's just... Yeah. And again, with the mask, you know, I, I mentioned the mask, but it's like, as far as I can understand, you know, I've looked at the Nature Medicine paper, the PNAS paper, and there, there is... Good, strong evidence that masks help. And yeah, I don't know, in this country, I mean, even compared to America, it's sort of like, oh, you know, maybe we should wear masks. Instead of sort of coming out and having a strong evidence-led 
campaign for why they're a good thing. Um, yeah, it's just not yeah. there. So, so there is a there is a sort of failure of uh, of communication, not necessarily from scientists themselves, but from uh, from policymakers who are. Uh, yeah, as you say, appropriating science, the science that they're following. <laughs> well, yeah, no, exactly. But I think Twitter has many good things and many bad things about it. But one of the good things is that, of course, that one can follow scientists that you trust, so sort of Richard Horton and Debbie Sadar, and, and sort of get their take, you know, the take of serious professionals on this situation. Um, so that that is more democratic than having complete control over the message. So there's definitely a role for science communicators there's a need for them. <laughs> I believe so. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I, I yeah, it's, it's funny. I've sort of just, I've, I've not written about COVID and I kind of feel almost a personal guilt for not having interacted with the story of our times. Um, <laughs> my only excuse is I'm only just finishing my March to-do list right now. Um, so maybe I'll do that. But yeah, no, of course. So. I mean, Ed Yong, um, who's a fantastic journalist, works in the Atlantic now, you know, some of his, hmm. he's written three or four, five, long form pieces that have been fantastic, you know, very well resourced, very clearly communicated. Yeah. And I'm sure there's many others as well that I'm forgetting. Um, there was a piece that I read via an online link, so I'm forgetting which publication. Was. There, there was an account, and I wish I could remember the author's name because it was a fantastic, fantastic story, just describing UCLH at peak pandemic. And he just hit the, the oh, author, really? it was a hymn, just accompanied the, the consultant on the wards and it was one of the most stunning stories i've read and just like the absolute... oh well uh, let me know what it is afterwards and i'll put it on a link <laughs> Dude, <laughs> in the description yeah. of the podcast that'd be uh, but that'd it did describe but i mean it did describe how like the, there was basically the, the the people who run uclh were basically talking to the people running hospitals in northern italy and preparing for the pandemic because the government weren't taking charge that was one of the most memorable lines in it other than just the pure emotional toll on the doctor and his staff um, yeah, so of course I believe in science communicators. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I like I said, it's funny. I think I have, you know, we spoke about styles of writing, and I think I, I, I come from, coming as an academic, one I think it brings with it a certain heritage, and so I think I probably was most comfortable with um, writing, you know, science writing, and like, you know, isn't biology amazing sort of stuff? Isn't research yeah. cool? And so the journalistic stuff is sort of more stuff that I, I'm learning to do, and I want to be able to do it well. But you know, just stuff like. Ed Young has done all the, the stuff, the story I'm just writing about. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's really important. These journalists are just going in on the ground and and telling the true stories. Yeah, I, I, I think that's vitally, vitally important. Before we move on, I was going to ask you about your your um, your new book in a minute, your children's book. So we can, we can trail that. But I was just um, looking at my scribbled notes here and, and thinking about um, connections um, and Connections as clearly uh, beaten autocorrect as any kind of unifying theme, but I can. Uh, I, I would I can like just to know edit, a bit more about it. why you chose it. Uh, well, because I, I, I thought it was a connection with the 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 whole artificial augmented intelligence thing, and the, and the extent to which uh, you know, I, I suppose what I was kind of working towards is the the boundaries of the human, and I I did this uh, I did this cartoon. Years ago, which I uncovered actually just the other day, uh, I actually had it printed on a T-shirt. It's a it's a a, a pie chart, and about fifteen um, percent uh, of it uh, is shaded in. It says my brain, and the rest of it is Google. Um, <laughs> it just, it, I think the caption is my capacity for thought. 
Um, and there is a sense in which we are all augmented by the technology. And I suppose it, it, it uh, feeds into what you're talking about, your piece about uh, neuroethics um, and, and yeah. you know, issues like self-driving cars and, uh, you know, and, uh, and even online, you know, the, the fact that uh, so much uh, content now is automatically produced and uh, uh, some news outlets uh, have uh, computer uh, written content rather than journalists. Yeah, yeah, it's funny you say that. I, I, I was literally thinking about autocorrect yesterday. So my 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 daughter's um, a grandparent adopted an endangered animal for them, and they got their letter from the WWF, and it said, "If you want to know more, if you have further questions about your animal, go to our website and look at the frequently asked questions section." <laughs> so, All right. so it was this sort of big promise that if you have a question. Yeah, it's like my kids. My kids will have hundreds of questions. Yeah, yeah. But it's like go to the website and you can basically have an answer to one of our ten pre-specified questions. Yeah, so, you know, it's like it, it, they're not offering you access to an expert or someone who knows the subject intimately who will take the time to listen to your question and answer it and tailor their mm. answer to your query. And I also, it's, I, it's actually led to me thinking about autocorrect a bit more. And so I don't know if you use Gmail. I use Gmail. And, and yeah. I don't know, a few months, they used they sort of started with these sort of choose one of these three replies, which I think everyone hated. But now they've introduced this quite aggressive autocomplete function on it. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, even if you don't like it, you are offered the temptation every time you write. And so... And sort of, you know, two thirds of the time, it probably it does get the context right, and it offers you the option to press one button, which will auto complete your sentence. But, but you will auto complete it using a very standard way of speaking. And so it's like, yeah, you start typing, and you may you may have an urge to express yourself in an interesting way, which might be tailored to the person you're writing to. But you are, as soon as you start writing that sentence, you are offered the stereotypical standard way of finishing it. Yeah, and we're all in a rush, so you sort of press it, and, it's, and so I don't like it. So it came up in the context of the piece I wrote about sort of brain-computer interfaces last year. And yeah, then, you know, when philosophers think about this, they do see it as a fundamental diminishment of of human autonomy. And so the question is, if I could press the autocorrect function in this email, who was the author of that line? You know, we. Mm-hmm. We'd like to think, oh, I wrote it. But actually, I don't know, Google kind of suggested it. Um, yeah. And so the sort of technology can just sort of lead you down paths. And it just, I don't know, it just <laughs> seems to just sort of diminish human individuality to, to uh, in a fairly well, fundamental way. I think, I think way. it I probably goes beyond that, doesn't it? Because it's also the, the Google algorithm training you to express yourself in certain ways. Um, hmm. Yeah. And, uh, oh, you know, just go. Yeah. And of course, we all know that sort of Google, the Google algorithms, you know, if, there's a fight to be at the top of those, isn't there? So, you know, yeah, whoever yeah. Googles COVID symptoms, you know, they're going to get the same out. I mean, with COVID symptoms, you would hope the top answer would be the most definitive list. But just oh, in terms of creativity. <laughs> no, 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 actually, yeah, whoever paid the most or whatever. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so it's just... But, I mean, that's yeah. it's an interesting... It, it brings us kind of full circle in the sense that this is an instance where the choice of words, the way you communicate, is actually dictated by something external somebody else's design somebody else's algorithm and uh it, it's a kind of act of resistance <laughs> to say i'm not going to use that i'm not going to use autocorrect yeah, yeah, yeah. and take responsibility for my own communication and and you have to as with all these 
you know, talking about uh, vaccinations and so on, you have to kind of understand the implications of that bit of science before you can make your decision, don't you? You have to understand what the implications are of just going with the flow or believing a story that you read on Facebook rather than investigating. Yeah. Um, so education is yeah, no, pretty fundamental. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. One experience that a lot of science writers and presumably all journalists have online is that I, I put up stories and, and, the, and, and the editor has designed a headline to be as catchy as possible and the little subtitle stand first as well. Mm. And it's incredible how often the comments, like the only logical response to the comments I get is to say, read the story. people will say oh but you didn't and it's like that's in paragraph five you know that's in paragraph eight yeah i've I've done that and so it it can be really i mean what really annoys me about (laughs) about crappy dishonest communication or it's just how lazy it is you know i I, like i said as i said earlier i feel a a huge obligation to try and get everything as right as possible and that yeah requires hard work you know and it's like I'm not saying I can do everything in three weeks, but I'll do everything I can to, to give you the best oversight of a topic I can, you know, as fair as I can muster it, because that's a value I hold dear. And so just to sort of, you know, just from a very personal standpoint, just to see this cheap disinformation out there, it's just maybe disheartening. And yes, yeah, yeah, all you want from your reader is, is some critical thinking and a willingness to read the whole article. Yeah, that, that's probably quite fundamental. But it's also probably one of the reasons why Twitter is uh, so corrosive sometimes, because <laughs> people don't react to what's actually being said. And, and even what's being said, no. um, in any case, doesn't have a great deal of depth. I, I'm, I'm always, um, I'm, not, I, I'm not always, but I, I do strive to uh, read the source <laughs> if I'm going to comment on anything. You know, if somebody's put a link to an article, uh, it's best to read the actual article yeah. rather than just respond to the response to the response to the response. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. but it's it, it is interesting how all these systems. Um, I, I, I talk about them as systems, but I mean all these uh, technologies are are kind of um, uh, often invisible. You know, we, we, we just adopt them, we just adapt to them and, and they the way they shape our behaviour and, and and increasingly and obviously most recently, the way they shape our thoughts. Mm. And so, you know, I think that's probably feeds into what we're saying about uh, the weaponization of, of scientific uh, terms or scientific credentials, you know, the whole yeah. uh, environment thing is uh, probably the the best example of that, the whole kind of anthropogenic global warming. Yeah, I mean, all of these issues, all of them are just so, so complicated. And just, yeah, like you say, we're living in a world of technological platforms which are give us fragments of information and sort of play on our emotions and want to get a reaction mm. out of us. And, um, I mean, it should, we all believed it was going to be the great, uh, you know, democratic process, giving everyone a voice. And it, and it has done that, but it's also done something rather corrosive and, and has reduced debate it's just simply very frustrating, isn't it? Yes, but I suppose that that means, <laughs> yeah, you, you do have to take great care about who you take notice of, and 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 it's good that uh, that there are, as you say, responsible and uh, uh, careful uh, writers and researchers on these platforms as well, uh, that you can yeah. hopefully you can uh, kind of pick out and and follow and so on and 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 
it's a bit like controlling your diet isn't it it's uh, it's kind of you, know, you, have to, you have to choose what you eat carefully you have to take some responsibility for that um there's so much else we could have talked about i mean i was going to talk about gender as well because there's there's sort of a whole thing about um x and y chromosomes i think i think is that mentioned in your book or is it, um i think I so do, i do have a chapter yes on yeah and how it's not that simple and it's not universal. And that's that's fascinating as well. I mean, again, you know, that's fascinating in the context of all the debates about gender and, uh, and uh, transgender and, you know, what constitutes male and female. It's a fascinating debate when you, you know, when people are trying to make a claim to the scientific basis of gender and but we'll, we'll just have to come back to that another time. Because <laughs> if we came back to that, I would want to do a lot of reading up. I feel that oh, okay. it's such an right. evolving concept that I'm. I'm yeah. only learning. I could talk to you about the nuts and bolts of uh, Y chromosomes, but yeah, the gender is. Uh... Yeah, yeah, but it's you know, it's the it's the kind of uh, connection, I suppose, between yeah, biological sex and and gender and and. Uh... No, precisely, precisely. Oh, incidentally, I, I did. I think there's probably quite a good connection here. I think it's a good connection. Um, so you, uh, you can tell us what a, a fetal Doppler is, can't you? I'm testing you there. Fetal Doppler. I'm not sure. I can't tell you what a fetal. Oh, it's a, it's a it's a scan. It's a scan. It's a scan that listens to a, a baby's heartbeat. You know, it's the sort of thing that oh, uh, okay. American couples buy because they want to hear the yeah listen to their baby. <laughs> anyway, but. Um, uh, Christian Doppler, uh, physicist, Austrian physicist. I, I, well, I'm, I just wrote these notes down, so I'm just telling you. It might be interesting. Who uh, made a contribution to what became known as a Doppler effect? I, I, I understand that the French don't call it a Doppler effect because of another scientist involved, but um, he ended up in the University of Vienna, and one of his pupils was Gregor Mendel. And that was surprised me because I always thought Gregor Mendel was much older than physics, if you see what I mean, in that sense. And that sort of, but there's a connection. Anyway, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> it was your word. Yes, it's funny. Gregor Mendel is often portrayed as this sort of lone monk who was just up in the monastery rediscovering yeah. biology, you know, redefining biology. But actually, he was, he was quite a well networked guy. He wasn't uh, just some eccentric punk. <laughs> well, um, so, as I say, we're going to come on to your children's book. You mentioned it briefly at the beginning. Uh, this is Dorling Kinsley. Do you know when mm -hmm. it's going to be out? It's going to be out next spring. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's been a really fun project. Like I say, it's seven to nine-year-olds. And, and yeah, it's basically 32 two-page spreads, each one with a sort of key idea in neuroscience. And, you know, starting with what is a brain, what does a brain do? And I think it's just been a really interesting exercise to sort of try and convey the sort of heart of an idea mm. in sort of three or four pictures and 200 odd words. And obviously, like I said, you know, it's it's very much a collaborative project um, with them. I mean, they're obviously immense expertise in, in this, in children's books, well, in all books, mm. but, you know, these illustrated books. So it's been really good fun just to sort of come up, I, you know, I'd come up with the key ideas, send them a bad PowerPoint presentation with sort of key points yeah. on it, and they've sent me back these illustrations. So, yeah, we've got sort of, you know, what? how does a brain grow from conception to birth? And then how does the brain change from birth to adulthood and then adulthood into old age? Um, sort of sensory systems, memory, how we learn, a few bits on evolution. And it's not a pop-up. <laughs> 
the animations are so good they do look like they pop out of the page but they, they are strictly 2d <laughs> That's a, good all right well listen um thank you so much uh for spending this time i think we've yeah i don't know we've had an hour or something and it, it hasn't seemed like it and um i'm particularly pleased that we got through the whole thing without mentioning tapirs um, <laughs> I, I saw a tweet talking of twitter i saw a tweet of a tapir and that piece of tapir anatomy yeah. that i wrote about in the book so yeah, yes, I'm, yeah I was it's, reminded. it's ever popular but um i leave the readers to find that uh, for themselves <laughs> yeah, exactly uh, but uh thank you very much yeah, and good. uh yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Been... <laughs> Very good. So that was Liam Drew, and he was talking to me about his book, I Mammal, which came out in paperback last year so if you'd like to read that and i do recommend it particularly uh when you get to the bit about the tape here which we didn't talk about yeah it's uh normally 9.99 but uh, if you order it from mr books you get it for just 7.99 uh, if you use the code ideas in writing uh, if you want to order it online of course you can go to mrbooks.co.uk forward slash i mammal that's all one word it's i mammal um and uh if you want it delivered then of course there's a postage and packing charge of course um what else can i tell you well um coming up in the next month we're doing a couple of good recordings hopefully they'll they'll happen with the fabulous arthur smith the godfather of uh comedy and the edinburgh fringe and walking tours around Arthur's seat and uh, so much to talk about. And he's got a couple of books out, which uh, I know you'll enjoy. Uh, also, was hopefully speaking to Giles Paley-Philip, who's a, a experienced uh, children's author and also a podcaster. And he's just brought out a new book. And I've got to check the title. Hang on. 152 Days. Um, it's, uh, well... I'll tell you about that when we when we get to speaking to Giles. But anyway, depending on when these uh, happen, we might try and slot one or two more guests in over the next uh, couple of months. But if you've got an idea for a guest uh, or a future podcast, or you'd like to join in a listeners reading group in the future, just email Mr. Books. Ideas in Writing is produced with the support of Mr. Books Bookshop in Tunbridge, the home of inspiring, imaginative and intelligent books, gifts and conversation. You can find it at mrbooks.co.uk and on Twitter at mrbooks underscore ton, T-O-N for Tunbridge, uh, to order all kinds of books, new and secondhand, or you can visit them. And uh, I recommend you visit them because it's awfully quiet at the moment. It's uh, open Wednesday to Saturday, 10 till 5, and you can pick up a brilliant book for just a few pounds thanks for listening see you next time
Hello, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us. You just need to click on the link and become an ACAST supporter. It's a one-off donation. You can give as much or as little as you like, and uh, there's no commitment. But it certainly helps us to keep producing these podcasts. So thank you very much.